This is an ABC podcast. David Neuheiser is an academic and a philosopher, and he writes about hope. What does it mean to have hope? To be hopeful in dangerous times and in a secular society. David grew up in the United States in a fundamentalist Protestant church. His father, Jim, was a pastor in that church. David was homeschooled for most of his childhood, and he was brought up on the emotionally and imaginatively powerful Bible stories. And one of the stories that was often told to him was the tale of the wayward child. And it was pointed out to him that you really didn't want to be that wayward child. But once David went to university, he was exposed to other ways of thinking about the world, and that led to something unthinkable, dating someone who was not only outside the faith, but of another faith altogether. And that's when he became the wayward child. And his dad even wrote a book about it. But since then, David and his father have been able to re-establish their relationship on firmer ground. David's newest book is called Hope in the Secular Age. Hi, David. Hi, Richard. Your earliest years were in Saudi Arabia. What brought your family there? My father was initially sent there to work. He worked in the oil industry, as most expats do. But the reason that he stayed is that he always felt a call to minister. He was passionately committed to his Christian faith. And shortly after he arrived in the country, the leader of the church he was a part of got kicked out of the country and asked my father to take over the leadership of the church. And so my father did. What memories do you have of those early years in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia? Do you have any pictures in your head of that left? I do, yeah, just fragments because I was five when we left the country. My most vivid memory is of learning to swim because we lived in a, in a compound with other expats from all over the world. And there was a pool because it was hot and dry in Jeddah. We spent a lot of time in the pool. And I remember learning to swim with my father. I remember the, the temperature of the water. I remember trying to make my way through the water to him. I remember spending a lot of time with my mother because I was the eldest son. My brother Mark was born, but he was quite young. And we would spend lots of time playing board games together. I think we were each other's company. Lots of beautiful fragments like that. How were they able to do Christian worship in such a conservative Islamic society? It was secretive from what I understand. I mean, I was I was a kid, but I, I have memories of groups of people meeting in our house or we would go sometimes to other people's houses and there would be practices to try to ensure that the meetings minimized suspicion. So it was all done in secret. It was, it was organized in a way to, to try to avoid raising suspicion as much as possible. Often Islamic societies will make room for you to, for you to have a church if you're a Christian or a, a temple if you're in a synagogue if you're Jewish, but you, you really are not under their kind of religious rules to con- try and convert any Muslims to your faith. Did that happen? And were, were your parents trying to do that? Or what, what, how did that work for your family in Saudi Arabia? From what I have been told, from what I remember, most of the people in this community were people from the Philippines or Sri Lanka or the UK. But there was, after we'd been there for four or five years, there was a a man, I think, from Syria who began to come to the church. And I think through that experience, if I remember right, he was converted. And I think that's when it, it really became a problem for the authorities because even though it was technically 
not allowed to to have a worshiping Christian community. My understanding is that they probably knew about it and they tolerated it until this Syrian man became a member of the community. And then it was a bit too close to home. What did that mean for your parents? Did they have to get out after that? Yes, we were we were kicked out of the country, so we had to leave quite abruptly, quite soon. So how quickly did you all have to leave Saudi Arabia? I don't really remember. I mean, I was a child. And I think the, the only memory that I have is that one day, one month, one week, I was attending preschool with a bunch of international kids. And I don't know, I remember running around pretending to be Superman and getting my hair cut at, at a barber by my Middle Eastern man. And then the next day I was in Southern California and it was all quite sudden. Yeah, the change must have been quite, quite profound for you. What was your father going to do once he was back in, in Southern California? The thing that, that took him there, the reason we moved there, is that he, although he had led this, this Protestant church in Jeddah for five or six years, he hadn't had any formal training as a minister by that point, or, or relatively little. And there was a seminary in Escondido, where I grew up, that he wanted to undertake a formal degree to train to be a minister. While he was doing that, what kind of an education were you getting? The first year that we were there, I, I went to a local Christian school. But from the second grade until – really until I went to university, I was, I was taught at home. Who was the, doing the teaching? Mostly my mother. So through primary school, it was mostly just the two of us. I was fairly independent. But she would work with me on the curriculum and, and sort of check my progress – was it within the standard school curriculum of the time, or did she choose the curriculum? Yeah, my parents, there were a range of providers that catered for homeschoolers. It's a, it, it was already at that time, and I think even more now, it was a significant movement in the United States. And many, many people in the U.S. choose to teach their kids at home for similar reasons as my parents, because they were concerned about worldly influences. They were religiously conservative, and so... My parents found curriculum that accorded with their values. Did that mean it, they had to skirt around science or parts of science or all of science? So I, I studied science, but it was a very very specific viewpoint on science. So one of the main reasons my parents didn't want me to go to the local public school is that they didn't want me to learn about evolution. They didn't want me to, to think that the world was millions of years old because they thought that that was in violation of uh, Christian scripture. And so the science that I was taught was that the, the earth was several thousand years old rather than millions of years old. How about everything else like English literature or American literature? Did you get that as well? I did, yeah. And I, that's one of the things I really value about the education I had actually is that in certain respects it was quite constrained, but in other respects it really opened up a lot of possibilities for me. So I had lots of time to read and I was really encouraged to explore in literature and philosophy and just expand my mind as much as I could. could you, Philosophy-wise, could you go beyond Christian thinkers or were you, you know, just Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, that sort of thing? Or were you going into the, into the ancients a bit more than that? Well, this was one of the things that really began to, to change me in a deep way. So when I started secondary school, I began to take classes that were offered for other homeschoolers. And, and there were increasingly classes that were offered by people who were catering for homeschoolers that would meet once a week. I would meet with other kids my age. And many of these classes focused on the quote-unquote great books of Western civilization. And we sort of started with the 
classic Christian texts like Augustine and Aquinas. But what I learned is that you can't really understand Augustine and Aquinas without understanding Plato and Aristotle. And so I sort of, the philosophy gained a toehold in my mind. And through this course of study, I also studied Pascal and Marx and... Marx? Yeah. Like you're not learning evolution, but you're getting Karl Marx? Wow. Indeed, yeah. And it was all, all, all kinds of books that were important for, uh, for understanding the context. Karl, religion is the opiate of the masses, Marx, that guy? You were getting that? Were you, were you getting his critique of religion and his kind of very strong feelings about the church and its baleful influence on modern life? I forget which Marx exactly <laughs> we read. But the premise of this course of study was that for Christians of the kind that I was at the, at the time, my parents wanted to prepare me and, and other, other parents wanted to prepare their kids to sort of go out and do battle in the world on behalf of the faith. Ah, so you had to know what the line of thinking was so you wouldn't be overwhelmed with it when you met it? Exactly, that's right. We were trying to prepare people to sort of go out into the world and, yeah, do, do battle, as it were. And so you had to know what Marxist ideas were. You had to, had to know what pagan philosophy was like so that you could be prepared to face it. In the Middle Ages and the Renaissance in Europe, they, they looked at philosophers like Aristotle and Plato as being brilliant, amazing thinkers who just didn't have the benefit of knowing Jesus Christ because Christ hadn't walked on the earth at that time. So they were seen as brilliant but, but deprived in some ways because they hadn't had the benefit of the presence of Jesus Christ in the world and Christian thinking. Is that how you were introduced to those very ancient philosophers? I think it was a question. It was a question even with Augustine. Because I, I read Augustine when I was relatively young. I must have been 13 or 14, I think. And I was raised to think that many people who call themselves Christians aren't really Christians. I was raised to think that Catholics are beyond the pale. And Augustine had a lot of – thought a lot of things that I was raised to believe were not Christian. And I remember reading Augustine's Confessions and thinking there was a really powerful faith that was animating this book. It was beautiful. It moved me. And I felt like his faith spoke to my faith in a sense. But I also felt like he didn't count as Christian on the basis of what I had been told Christianity was. And so before I even got to Aristotle and Plato, I realized that Augustine already exploded my understanding of what the boundaries were. Did that unsettle you? It, it did, yeah. It raised a lot of questions. And I think I brought that to my reading of Plato, also Plotinus, because... One of the things that runs through Augustine, but a lot of other early Christian thinkers, medieval Christian thinkers, is that they interpreted Christian tradition through the lens of these classic texts because they, they, they found in them a resource that helped them to think through their faith. So I found the echo of these really rich Christian thinkers in the classics. And that, that made me think I couldn't, just, I couldn't just say that they were all suffering in hell, as it were. Or the first circle of hell, where Dante <laughs> put them, where they wouldn't suffer, but they were nonetheless in, in hell, in mm. the kind of the, the nice part of hell. <laughs> suburbs of hell. Yeah. That's right, the suburbs of hell, the outer burbs of hell, mm. where the, the fire didn't quite, quite tickle them. At the same time, I'm imagining you're getting a, a lot of those very powerful Bible stories, which are so emotional and vivid and full of extraordinary images. What were they to you? How real were they to you, David, as a kid and as a teenager? They were very, very powerful. I mean, it was the, <laughs> it wasn't just that I was taught to believe them, although that was an important part of it, but it was sort of the, <laughs> the amniotic fluid that I was, that I was sort of seeping in. It was nur nurturing me. 
I was seeping it through my skin all the time, not just the sort of doctrines and not just the principles, but the imagery. Daniel in the lion's den, Noah in the whale, Jesus in the desert. Moses in the burning bush. Moses in the burning bush. The Red Sea parting, all of that. Yeah. All of that, yeah. One of the things you always ask yourself, one of the first major philosophical questions anyone asks themselves, I think, as a kid is, why do terrible things happen to good people in this world? What happened when you asked yourself that question? And when you asked your parents and other people that question, why do terrible things happen to good people in the world? I think I was probably a, a very difficult child because I think I was drawn to questions of that kind, even very early on. Even when I didn't really know that there were other ways of being Christian or even other ways of being a, a good person with integrity in the world, I sort of sought out contradictions of that kind and tensions. I was raised in a form of Christianity that's pretty unusual, that, that believes that God causes everything in a very direct way, has a really strong sense of what's called divine providence. And that makes the, the problem of evil that you've just described especially hard because it seems like you can't explain it away by referring to human freedom because on this view, it sort of doesn't seem like humans have freedom. And so it seems like God really is responsible for the suffering of a child and all of the evils that we see in the world. And I think even when I was pretty young, I thought, that seems difficult to understand. In the book of Job, you know, famously Job gets challenged to see how robust his faith is in God's goodness. And he's visited with all these terrible things. His family are all killed. He loses everything. He has hideous boils upon his body. And eventually he decides he's had enough and he shakes his fist at God. And his friends come along and they go, you shouldn't do that because you must have done something. Eventually when God does appear to him, he says, you know, why are you raising your fist to me? Why are you doing this? Do you even know what's going on in the world? You're this tiny speck and, and I'm God and I'm working at 100 levels above you at the moment. Can you catch the Leviathan with the fish hook? How satisfied were you with those kind of stories? There's a kind of a weird sense to them. But what did, what did you think of them at the time? I mean, I think even then I had a complicated relationship to the tradition that I was raised in, partly because the tradition I, I think I already sensed at that point contains enormous complexity. I think the story of Job is a really good example of it because there's a way of reading that book that treats the ending as if it resolves all of the problems, the sort of assertion of divine authority. God comes in and God's like, basically, sh shut up, I'm God. But if you look at the book in a different way, you can see that it contains many voices that are dealing with the problem of suffering in lots of different ways. There's a sort of plurality. And it can be read as intensifying the question rather than resolving it. If it's sort of, I guess, interpreted as a, as a literary work, if you don't approach it with the desire to sort of settle a difficult problem, but ask, what is this complicated text teaching us? How is it complicating the problem? It gives us a much more, I think, rich entryway into a, a really profound human problem, not only a profound theological problem. Some years ago, I did a special show on this, and uh, I interviewed my friend Scott Stevens about this. Scott, who is the co-host of The Minefield on ABC Radio National, and he thinks, he says the point of the story of the book of Job is embedded in that comment that God makes at the end. When God turns on Job's friends, when he says, first of all, he says to Job, you know, it's not for you to know, you're too small to comprehend what's going on. And then he turns on his friends and goes, and you, what kind of friends are you? <laughs> you didn't stand by your friend and you should have stood by your friend. And Scott thinks that's the room, that's at the heart of the story here, that we must love and stand by our friends. Mm. 
in the midst of their misery rather than walk up to them and say, well, you must have done something mm. to get all this trouble. What do you think of that? I think that's a really powerful, I think that's a really powerful point. And it's one of the ways in which, I mean, one of the things that's been the sort of story of my life since I left this religious community that I was raised in has been to think about what these stories can offer people who aren't committed to these traditions. And I think the book of Job is a great example just in the way that you described because even people who don't believe in God suffer and ask what it means and friendships are sometimes strained by that experience. And I think in the way that you've described, an ancient text like this contains wisdom that doesn't just answer the problem, doesn't just resolve the problem, but gives us images to help us work through the problem. So I have a picture of you as this kid and a teenager who's having this very vivid childhood with these very powerful Bible stories. And nonetheless, your, your sense of the world is being unsettled by your introduction to a whole lot of philosophers that you're supposed to be ready to argue against. While you're going through this, were you meeting up with other homeschooled kids like you? And were you talking about this sort of thing with them? I was. Yeah, that was, that was a huge part of my life. And it was sort of, a, it was sort of an explosion in my life when I reached the sort of secondary school period when I, I began to study these philosophical texts in the way that I've described. And the classes that I mentioned, this, these sort of classes that were designed for homeschoolers to sort of come together, many of those, this was just at the beginning of the, of the internet where there was an infrastructure to allow classes like this to happen with an online component. So the classes that I was attending brought together kids my age from, in many cases, all over the country in the United States. And so I, I developed relationships with people my age, really for the first time, I had an extensive group of friends and conversations swirled, you know, it was really, really exhilarating. The thing that energized the conversations, I think, was a, was a sort of excitement about questions of the kind that you're raising about Job and other, other questions like that. We were all just really excited to, to think together, to sort of find the sort of fissures and seams that ran through the stories and texts and traditions that we were raised with. What was the outside secular world to you as a teenager? Mostly it was, it was a threat. I sort of felt it as a threat. It was what I was told. It was something that I believed that I should keep at a distance because if I didn't, it would imperil my life. But even more than that, my eternal soul. How hard was that in this day and age? I mean, how are you going to keep hip-hop at bay as a teenager? <laughs> Seriously, how are you going to do that? How are you going to keep Star Wars at bay? Was that ever ever possible for you? <laughs> Star Wars, that was a big moment, yeah, because the, the original trilogy was, was re-released when I was, I don't know how old, how old I was, 15, and all that New Age stuff about yeah. the Force. The Force, yeah. 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 So my, my parents reflected for a long time about whether they were going to let us watch these movies, which in retrospect seems kind of sweet because they're pretty innocent compared with a lot of other entertainment. But they thought for a long time, and what they decided was they were going to let me and my brothers watch the original Star Wars trilogy as long as each of us wrote a paper <laughs> about why the philosophy in the film was wrong. I kid you not. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so you were watching uh, – no, I don't mean to be rude, uh, but, but it just, it's just kind of wild to be watching Star Wars looking, looking at it really closely for theological inaccuracies. It's pretty, that's what you were doing, though, by the sound of things. I have the paper to prove it. I'll, try to, <laughs> no, I'll send it to you afterwards. You'll, it'll blow your mind. What did your religious faith mean to you at the time? Was it, was it about beauty and truth 
Or was it more about law in your mind? I was told that it was about law. The self-understanding of the tradition that I was raised in is that being Christian means believing certain things. And believing means affirming certain statements that can be expressed in words. I believe that Jesus is God's only son, that he died on the cross for our sins. Statements like that. That's what belief is, and that's what faith means. So that's what I thought the faith consisted in. Looking back, I can see that I no longer have that relationship to that tradition. I don't believe in that sense. But there's still a lot about that tradition that remains in me that I still value. And I think it's the thing that you're describing, actually, the sort of sense of the sense of wonder, the way in which, as I mentioned in passing, the sort of stories, they worked their way inside of me in a way, and they became the the sort of symbolic material that I think with. They opened my mind to possibilities that I, I wouldn't have had access to otherwise. That's not what my parents thought their faith consisted in, but I think that was and is actually a really important dimension of what it always was. I've always been interested in those medieval thinkers who, and Renaissance thinkers in Europe who saw the world as this beautiful, incredibly complex puzzle, this magnificent thing full of secrets, like this glorious puzzle slash contraption slash mystery, and that God had created for us to walk upon, and also had endowed us with the ability to reason to figure it out. Therefore, to find out how the world works, to unlock its secrets, was to, to their mind, to celebrate God, to celebrate this gift that they'd been given. It was a really quite a profound idea, I think. It kept them quite joyful in their faith. Did you have that sense of the world? I did, I think, yeah. Well, I mean, it was sort of at a, at a pivot point in my life, but I, I read the novels of Umberto Eco. What you've just described reminds me of The Name of the Rose is a beautiful novel by Echo, where he sort of captures this medieval feeling, the sort of feeling that the world is a mysterious place. Yeah, and you solve it like a detective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I had the feeling then that there, there, were, there were sort of forces and possibilities. There was, the world was injected with a kind of meaning that things mattered. I, I no longer believe that some people are destined to spend forever in eternal torment, but I really value that sense that what we do matters, and that's something that I, that I continue to carry with me in my life. Yeah, that's really powerful. Tell me about the story of the wayward child that was put to you as a kid. Yeah, I think especially when I, when I was entering adolescence, it became really important. I spent a lot of time in church. My father, when we were in California, he was the minister of a church, and so I heard him preach often several times a week. I would go to youth group. In all these contexts, both in the context of the whole church, and then especially when it was us adolescents getting, getting a message just for us. We were given this sense that the world is a really scary place and that people were, would be trying to, trying to take away our faith and that there would be all sorts of temptations. Temptation was a really central idea. And that especially for young people, maybe especially for adolescents, there were all kinds of temptations that could, that could draw us astray. And then we had to always be on our guard against that possibility. And how was this told as a story? Was there an example given? Like there is this one day this boy or this girl was on the path and then straight off it and came to grief? Was it put in those sort of terms? There were all sorts of stories, yeah. I mean, there were sometimes ways of 
retelling, for instance, the sort of wisdom literature of Hebrew scripture, the Proverbs were often personified and the Proverbs will sort of make these warnings about some dangers that people can fall into. And those were sometimes made into a narrative of a life that can go astray. For me, probably the most powerful thing, I forget the person's name, but when I was, when I was around this age, I heard a rumor about someone who was in my friend group who went astray. And this story sort of circulated as something that could happen to any of us. It was especially scary because it was someone that we knew. It wasn't really clear exactly what had happened. It seemed like some sort of quote-unquote immorality was part of it. Maybe it was drugs. Maybe it was sex. Maybe it was just he, he apostatized somehow. But that became the embodiment of this threat that all of us felt like was, was a danger at any time. And what did you tell yourself? I, I will never be the wayward child or I – I must be careful. I don't become the wayward child. I think I felt like it was a danger for me. I was told that it was. And my education was designed, as, I, as I've said, it was designed to prepare me to do battle against the danger. But partly for that reason, I was primed to think that it could happen to me. And maybe because I had this, this uh, I don't know, slightly rebellious streak, I think I might have felt that it, that it was close in a way. Podcast broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So David, you went to university on the other side of the United States in California, in Virginia. Why did you pick that college in particular? I had a small set of universities that I was considering attending. They were places that I thought would be relatively safe, five places that were known to be relatively hospitable to conservative people, as I was at the time. But I think I wanted to go to a place that would also challenge me and help me to grow. So this was a place that it was known for providing an excellent education. I, I think I also, on some level, just liked the idea that it was far from home, that it would sort of expand my world in that sense. What was your first day on campus like? It's sort of embarrassing to remember, but I remember turning up as a first-year student, and I had the feeling like I was going to have to fight for my faith, even though this was a relatively hospitable place. Well, your guard was up, was it? My guard was up. Yeah. I thought... You know, there were maybe 400 students, I think, in my graduating class. I thought maybe there would be five other Christians, and I was going to have to find them in that first week. <laughs> and right. so I went around, and every conversation, because, you know, this is the first time I'd ever really been mm. around, like, a large group of people my age. And so it was really unfamiliar. I went around, and I asked every person in every conversation. I made sure to bring up, are you a Christian? I asked them. And I was utterly shocked when almost everyone said yes. So I had, I had sort of gone in expecting to sort of have to find the five people to batten down the hatches, prepare to defend ourselves. 
And then I found that I was actually in this context where most people culturally were, were Christian in some sense. Were there Catholics there, Catholic people? My closest friend in that first year was Catholic, actually, yeah. Was that a shock to meet a, a Catholic person? It was a shock to meet a Catholic person because I had been raised to believe that Catholics were not Christians. And it was a shock to find that he had a really passionate and compelling faith of his own. Why did the Protestant sects believe that Catholics weren't Christian? I mean, you can see why they might think they're not the right kind of Christian, but why did they think they were not Christian? It goes back to the Protestant Reformation in the early modern period when people like Martin Luther and John Calvin criticized the form of Christianity that was prevalent in Europe at the time. They thought that it involved rituals they felt were covering over the sort of personal faith that they thought was at the heart of Christian practice. They thought there was a practices of wealth. The church was accumulating wealth that they thought was unchristian in a sense. So they were really critical of the Church of Rome. Power was centralized in the, in the, in the papacy. Was the doctrine of transubstantiation, the idea that Christ is in the wafer and in the wine of, at, the, at the mass, was that a problem, a big part of it too? A huge problem, yeah. And that, there's whole sort of sacramental theology around around that, the sort of veneration of certain objects, prayers to saints, a whole sort of system of piety. And the tradition that I was raised in identified itself in in line with that tradition, that sort of Protestant tradition. So they were going right back to Luther and Calvin and defining themselves over and against Roman Catholicism. So how did you then square becoming friends with someone who was Catholic? Did did you tell yourself that they're they're just misled or that they're captive to something wicked? What did you say to yourself? I think we spent much of the first year of our friendship arguing pretty intensely about these theological questions. And I, I had the chance to use all of the preparation that I'd been given, the sort of polemics that I had been prepared for. And how did you go? <laughs> <laughs> well, what I, what I found is that the world was a lot more complicated mm-hmm. than I'd been taught. And this, this person had a faith that was actually just really compelling. And through him, I learned that Christianity was actually a lot older. It started before the early, early modern period. And it has been practiced in lots of different ways in lots of different places. Are your parents aware this was going on? They were pretty unnerved by it, yeah. They, they didn't know. They thought it was a threat. What happened when you started dating a woman who was outside the Christian faith altogether? Yeah, so in my second year, I developed a romantic relationship really for the first time in my life because I'd been raised to believe that dating was not a good idea. It was part of this narrative of the wayward child. Any sort of romantic relationship was seen as a threat. What, how were you supposed to ever get married then? The model was called biblical courtship. How did that work? Really, it was more like 19th century Victorian courtship. The parents of the man and the woman, because it was always an opposite sex couple, the parents were meant to get together and discern that there was a promising match to be made. And then the boy and the girl would sort of get together in chaperoned contexts. Right. It sounds like Sicilian Catholicism to me. <laughs> Quite a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so just meeting a woman off outside that context without a chaperone, that was frowned upon. That was frowned upon and that was seen as dangerous. So I, I began to date someone that itself would, would have been seen as questionable. But the woman that I developed a relationship with was a Buddhist woman whose parents were from Sri Lanka. That's, that's a big step to take. That was a really big step for you to take. Did you see it that way at the time? I did, mm. yeah. I mean, I think it was part of a trajectory, and I think it began 
I mean, it began reading Augustine when I was 14, and then it continued with my friend Michael in my first year of university. And then it continued with, uh, with my first girlfriend, because in each case, I found that I couldn't draw the lines as sharply as I'd been taught, that the, the line between in and out, saved and damned, wasn't as clear as I'd been taught. And what did your parents do once they found out you were dating a, a woman from a Buddhist family? Yeah, they, they cut me off. So they wanted me to come home immediately. They thought that my soul was at risk. And so they, they thought that what needed to happen was I needed to return home so that essentially they could, they could sort of help me come back to the faith. And were you worried they might be right? I was, yeah. So what did you do? I mean, it was a really scary time because I was, I was a teenager. I think I, was, I must have been 17 at the time. And when you say they cut you off, you mean financially as well from your tuition? Financially, yeah. So they were, you know, they weren't super wealthy. My father was the pastor of a small church, but they were supporting my education. I went to a private university, and so they were covering my tuition, paying for my food and lodging, and they stopped. So what did that mean for you? Did you go home or, or, or did you find some other way to continue on the path you were on? I did manage to, to continue. It was hard to figure out how, but I... I had the support of my teachers. They interceded on my behalf with the financial aid office of the university and basically convinced the university to come up with a, a plan so that I could take out some loans that were significant but, but not, not so much that I would be burdened for the rest of my life. You're obviously quite a brilliant student because you then got a scholarship to Oxford University. That must have really blown your mind going to Oxford, having come from the very controlled and what would look like, I suppose, to many people, a kind of cloistered uh, young life. What did that do for you going to Oxford? It was a pretty dizzying six months because I had this break with my parents. There was a process with the church that I was raised in that was itself a drama. And then I found myself living in England for a year. Oxford's so old and so beautiful, all that sandstone, bells ringing. It's a really powerful place to be in. That was probably the thing that made the the sort of biggest impact on me because in the U.S. where I was from, you know, Southern California is mostly strip malls. There there aren't many buildings that are older than 150 years old or so. And to be in a place with churches and colleges that have centuries and centuries of history – and then to be around just lots of really, really bright, curious people studying all sorts of things. It was really a feast. And then your dad wrote a book. Your dad wrote a book with a kind of a pointed title. Tell me about this book your dad wrote. Yeah, so it was the culmination of a long process because after I had this break with my parents, there was an extended heresy trial essentially in the church that I was a part of. That lasted for about six months. I had a series of conversations with the leadership of the church. Hang on, you were being tried for heresy, are you saying? I was, yeah, yeah. In absentia? No, so I I had a series of phone conversations with leaders in the church, and that culminated. I I actually went back the summer before I went to Oxford, so between my second and third year. I went back to spend, I don't know how long, a month or two back in my parents' house. Oh, David, that must have been horrible for you. I really think that must have been horrible. That a terrible, that's a terrible thing to have to endure. It was really complicated. And it culminated with this extended interview. I forget how long it was. Sort of probably two hours long with the leadership, I think it was five or six bearded white men quizzing me on my theology. And 
at the end of it, they decided that I had abandoned the faith, and they they read a letter to the congregation telling them that I was that I was no longer a Christian, and that everybody should pray for me. It's how terrible to be expelled from your tribe. Being expelled as a heretic is 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 pretty pretty intense. How do you, how do you look back upon that? Yeah, <laughs> I I feel like it was to some extent based upon a misunderstanding because. I'm certainly not that kind of Christian now, but at the time, I wanted to be a member of that community, and it was the only community that I knew, especially because I was taught at home. It was really where I felt that I belonged, and I think we were basically arguing about what what commitment to fidelity to that tradition meant. Did you feel alone, or did you feel like your feet were firmly planted now in the outer world? I felt pretty... I think pretty destabilized. I was trying to live with integrity. I was, in, in a way, <laughs> in a way, my position was sort of like what Martin Luther was doing 500 years beforehand. I was trying to sort of call things as I saw them. Here I stand, I can do no other. Exactly. But I wondered, much as Luther did, because he, I think he had demons of his own, doubts of his own. I thought maybe, maybe they were right, you know? So all I could do was sort of answer as best I saw it. But even then, I sort of wondered, maybe I was the, the wayward child. So then this book, what was this book your dad wrote? On the back of this process, after I got kicked out of the church, he wrote a book called When Good Kids Make Bad Choices. The irony <laughs> of it is that I, I think I'm not sure that he thought at the time that mm. I was a good kid. That's the thing. I sort of feel like it was more generous than, uh, mm. than he might have felt. But I read the book before he published it, actually. And I was actually really grateful in a way that he that he wrote it because it was his way of working through an experience that I think a lot of parents have actually, which is a really difficult experience, which is what do you do when your kids don't turn out the way that you think they should? What do you do when your kids turn out the opposite? My parents had devoted so much energy. They had taught me at home. They had invested in my education. I was the eldest son. I was, I was almost named after my father, James Roger Neuheiser III, very nearly. There was all this sort of legacy invested in me. And then I turned out to be, as you said, sort of the sort of heathen that, that was uh, the infidel, that was the sort of worst possibility. Really I was a heretic. I, I know. I'm just really interested in the fact that rather than making you furious, it sort of evoked compassion in you for your father. I wonder where he ended up in that book. Did he sort of res- resolve anything by the end of that about how he was going to come to terms with you being the wayward child he'd so feared? Every now and then, I'll go on Amazon and read the reviews that people have written about it. And wow. What are they like? I mean, <laughs> I have a complicated relationship to this book, as you might imagine. <laughs> and just to be clear to your listeners, I don't think it's a good book, per se. But it has done good things for a lot of people because the main message is that, as I understand it, if your kids don't turn out the way that you hope, it's not necessarily your fault because you can't control the way your kids turn out. You can do your best, but sometimes things happen. Your kids will develop in ways that are out of your control. And that's a pretty healing message, I think. How were you able to rebuild your relationship with your father or, put another way, reestablish it on firmer ground, for you at least? There was a period of rupture, and there have been more since then, because... I think one of the advantages that our relationship has is that it's always been premised upon honesty. That's something that a lot of the people that I grew up with don't have with their parents. But one of the challenges is that because we've been so honest with each other sometimes, we've had to stop talking for a little while. But after this initial break, 
There was a while when the conversation broke down. But my father and I met, and in a way that was really intentional and I think genuinely miraculous, we decided that our love for each other was more important than the disagreements that we had. And at a point when I thought there was no way forward for us, we both decided to just to to do it, to love each other. Doing did, it. did he say that, that the love was more important? I don't remember what he said, but it's another one of those moments, and this has been a lesson of my life in lots of ways. It's been a preoccupation of my scholarship. The The doing felt more powerful, more palpable than the saying in a way. I think it's interesting the way you said genuinely miraculous. What's the connection there between love and the miraculous? I, I've been thinking a lot about miracles for the last couple of years for lots of reasons, but this is the one time in my life when I feel like I've experienced something like a miracle. I've been reading sort of in philosophy or about miracles. Some people treat miracles as if it's a question of events that violate the laws of nature. But as I look back at medieval Christian tradition, other religious traditions, and I look back at Christian scripture, it seems like there's a more basic experience of wonder that lies at the heart of it. People who have an experience that they wouldn't have thought was possible before. And that's the thing that I found with my father, the love that we found and the fact that our love found a future together. That was something that just amazed me. It was an event that beforehand, it didn't seem like there was room for it in the world. And seeing it changed my sense of what was possible. So love just sort of barged in and forced an accommodation. Barged in isn't quite the right word, I suppose, but it, it kind of created this accommodation. Is that the miracle here, the, the, the accommodation and the reconciliation that it achieves? In Christian tradition, the miraculous is often associated with wonders. It's often associated with this sort of experience of amazement. And I experienced the love that I have with my father as something that was genuinely amazing. Maybe I think about it like this. I feel like with a lot of relationships, when you get used to a person, maybe especially someone in your family, it can be hard to let them be different than they were before. I think relationships can often get into a groove and... Even now, when I am with my brothers again, I sort of fall into the same patterns. I might be different now than I was 20 years ago when I was last a kid with them. But somehow the patterns reestablish themselves. And I think it's partly because of the expectations that we have for each other. And this is one of the things that I think made it hard for me and my father in that moment. We had these expectations of each other that made it seem like certain possibilities just weren't open. But the, the love that we had for each other first open those possibilities. We learned through our love for each other that our sense of what was possible was too limited. And that's the miraculous, I think. That's the thing that was, that was wondrous. So you moved to Australia, which is a vastly more secular country than the United States. Was that a factor in you moving here? Not in itself, no. I, I, I came because I got an amazing job and I stayed because it's an amazing country. Does it feel different to you, being in a much more secular country? It, it is quite different. And it's changed the character of my research in lots of ways. One of the main things that I, that I think about as a scholar is to try to help communities that are religious and communities that aren't figure out ways to talk to each other better. Because there are still lots of people in Australia that are religious. The census results came out recently. There's still a significant proportion of the population that is religious and religiously very diverse, not only Catholic, Protestant, but also Hindu and Sikh and everything else. And 
I think one of the lessons that I take from my life, and actually this ex- experience of rebuilding relationship with my father, one of the things it's, it teaches me is that there are possibilities for understanding that exist that in the abstract, if we just focus on the level of ideology and what people believe, it can seem like there's an insurmountable conflict. But on the level of relationship, if we try to build those links of love, it is possible to build mutual understanding. And so I feel like there's a space for that here that I really appreciate. There's also space for bike lanes here in this country. <laughs> and uh, I'm just bringing that as a really um, silly way, I suppose, to bring it to fact. You had a nasty bike accident mm. not so long ago. What do you remember of that accident? It was another, another one of these ruptures in my life that changed everything all of a sudden. I live in Melbourne's inner north, and so until my accident a year and a half ago, I spent cycling was the main way I got around. And one Sunday, I was cycling with my partner. I think I was on the way to the city, spend the Sunday afternoon kicking around. I was going through a major intersection. A car made an illegal turn across my path and blocked the bike lane. I didn't have time to brake. I slammed against the passenger side window, blacked out, woke up in the road. And at first, I thought I was just a bit banged up. My ribs hurt and my shoulder was sore. But then within the first week, my head started hurting and it hasn't stopped since. Any better now after all this time or does it persist at the same level? It is better, yeah. So I, I've been really lucky to have access to excellent care and my symptoms have improved a lot for the first, really the first six months. Even a brief conversation with a friend would leave me feeling really exhausted. I would have really severe brain fog. Something like this would not have been possible for me. Now I can sort of feel, having talked to you for this long, my, my brain fog is more intense. My head starts to hurt a bit worse, but I'm able to do a lot more. So I've come a long way for sure. So you've written a book about hope, hope in a secular age. Why did you want to write about hope? What's your thinking about hope been like, particularly since you've had a nasty accident that's threatened your ability to sit and ponder and think for long periods of time? One of the things that my... My book is about, which my accident has reminded me, is that people are just really vulnerable. And I was raised in a religious tradition that I think tried to tried to provide a kind of ideological certainty to make people feel like at least they knew that they were going to heaven. And I came to see about that tradition that that kind of certainty was fragile. And I think there are other similar attempts to secure certainty that are that are also fragile, whether they're other ideologies, secular ideologies, political ideologies, sort of philosophical attempts to make things certain. I think that there's something really important about honestly acknowledging the ways in which life is really hard, acknowledging that sometimes things hurt, sometimes things go wrong. It's important to face that, acknowledge the possibility, but we don't have to let it crush us. I see hope as the resilience that allows us to honestly face things that are difficult, but press forward anyway. Just as I did with my father, I thought our relationship, it seemed dead. It seemed like there was no way forward. I still held hope that we could press through. And that enabled the work. Hope is associated with the work that sort of takes you through. Doing. Doing, exactly. Yeah. It's not passive. And that's one of the reasons I think hope is often associated with a sort of cheap form of comfort. And sometimes the language of hope does fill that function. But in my life, this is one of the things that I've been thinking about in the, in the wake of my accident. I find that it's a restlessness for me. It's, it's a sort of 
something that, that is sometimes quite difficult, sometimes painful. The hopes that I have that are unrealized, they remind me that the way I want the world to be doesn't exist yet. There's a justice. I, I think people are suffering now. They don't have to suffer. My hope for a world with greater equality makes me feel pain at the ways in which needless suffering is continuing. And that that's the thing that makes me want to work, that keeps me keeps me doing and working in the way that you're describing. And I think in the context of a secular society like Australia, I think it's interesting to see how the language of hope and the miraculous continues to echo. And so one of the things that I think is so important about the study of philosophy and religion, one of the things that I think anyone, regardless of their own commitments, can find in these ancient traditions is that there are possibilities that are opened. This this idea that hope can open up new things, possibilities that we might not have imagined yet, things that don't yet exist. Fantastic speaking with you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. David Neuheiser is the author of Hope in a Secular Age. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.